Welcome to Impact and Freedom with your host, Jason Feldman. All right, welcome to Impact and Freedom. I'm Jason Feldman, and today we have the incredible Nora Denuzo. Nora, welcome. Um, Nora you. is the founder and president of Pitcher, a brand strategy and growth consultancy for small business that are ready to make a big impact. Nora is also launching a new venture called Blood, Sweat, and Tears. So I'd love to hear a lot about that. And uh, Nora, welcome. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Jason. Um, yeah. I, when I heard your name, Impact and Freedom, I'm like, oh, those are the the two reasons I became an entrepreneur. So of course, I was excited to be on your show. Oh, that's awesome. I li- So what I got that from is um, I joined this uh, mastermind. And one of the first things that we did was um, talk about personality profiles, jumped into the DISC profile, and my two biggest motivators are Impact and Freedom. So love that. I have never yeah. taken disc. I have a friend, Marta Dalton. She's an amazing e-com professional. She runs disc workshops. And so she's oh. always told me I need to take it. But I tell people all the time, I can tell you my MBTI, my Enneagram, and my uh, Zodiac sign. And that will tell you everything you need to know about me. So I'm an That's ENFJ, awesome. Enneagram 3, Capricorn. There you go. There you go. All right. So anybody that knows that knows exactly how to speak to you. Yes. <laughs> Super cool. Super cool. So I'd love to know, okay, let's let's go way back. I'd love to hear um what got you into this whole crazy world of uh entrepreneurship and you know, helping out people on the internet. Yeah, that is funny. I talk about like internet strangers all the time. <laughs> but some <laughs> of my best friends I've met on LinkedIn and business partners, collaborators. Yeah, it is a crazy world that we've like dipped our toes into, right? But um, yeah, so thanks for asking. My background was working for independent ad agencies. So 15, first 15 years of my career, I helped ad agencies grow in their business development team. So started off as a business development specialist, and then a manager, and then a director, and then a VP. So all the while helping agencies win new business, I was mostly focused on net new business as opposed to organic growth, which would be more work from existing clients. So bringing new clients into the agency, introducing them to what we could do for them. And that could be anything from an integrated offering, which in the agency world, we would call AOR or agency of record, which means we do everything for them from an advertising and marketing perspective, including strategy, creative and execution and media. Um, or just some seg- sub-segment of that. So a project that might just be, you know, public relations, an activation, could be a website, could be a brand strategy, packaging design, so anything like that. So yeah, that was my background was working for ad agencies. What year, what year range was that, 15 years? That was 2007, because I graduated from University of Pittsburgh in 2006 to 2021 is when I left to start Pitcher. Super cool. So what, like, I mean, you, you've spanned prior to the iPhone. Well, 2007 was iPhone, right? Ooh, that's a good question. I didn't have the iPhone. I was poor college student or just coming yeah. out of college. So I had like, my first cell phone was the Nokia brick. I forget what they called that, but the one that was like, you could hit someone with it and it would hurt. Yeah. <laughs> you could throw it across the room and it wouldn't break. Um, right. My first professional phone was the Blackberry, if anyone remembers Ooh. that gem. And then, yeah, I was working in advertising basically as social media was evolving. So like Pitt did get in 
as like a college student, I had Facebook, but it was like the very, very early phase of Facebook. It was like after Harvard and all the Ivies got it, it was like the second and third tier schools got access. So like I had it, but I was still on AIM. I was still messaging my boyfriend, now husband, like let's meet up across campus. And, you know, (laughs) we were literally on our, someone asked me yesterday what my AOL instant messenger name was. I couldn't remember it. It was hilarious. We were like, Uh, maybe we just need to go back to the AIM days. Yeah. The old Netscape dial up. (laughs) Oh God, that sound. (laughs) That sound. So good. Young people don't know that sound. No. Also, there was like a meme about like the satisfaction of slamming a phone down, like a phone that had a receiver, like a like ding, like when you slammed it down. It's very satisfying. I'm sorry, children, that you don't know that feeling. (laughs) That's so good, man. I remember. I remember when. I had AOL and it was like mind blowing and it took so long for that dial up to go. And then I remember, you know, chatting with people. And then like, I remember when a picture would come through and it would be all pixelated and then it would come through and it was like, oh my gosh, a picture from somebody all over, you know, it was like (laughs) mind blowing technology. But, mm-hmm. um, and then MySpace. This was before, MySpace. like you know, people catfished each other. We didn't yeah. know what catfishing was. Like, yeah, you only were you were lucky if you could get a picture of yourself from anywhere. You might have yeah. to upload it from your like, what was it, the disposable cameras? Like, you yep. take a photo, then you then you'd scan that. <laughs> yep. Oh, it's so funny. We've come a long way. We have come a long way in a short time. Let me tell we- you, to from that to Chat GPT, holy cow! Oh yeah, yeah. In, in a short period of time. It's funny. I met my wife in 2004. And so like prior to that, I used to party a little bit in my, in my twenties, uh, to say the least, as but like, we all, as yeah. <laughs> and, and MySpace was the big thing. And we would just, we go on MySpace and like hit up a bunch of people. Hey, who wants to party? And like, we had kind of a party house and just invite a ton of strangers over. And that was, why not? Internet strangers. Internet they're, strangers. They're still a thing. Yeah, we're we just are friends in different ways now. We used to invite you to the party in the basement off of MySpace, and now we like you know go network off of LinkedIn. Right. Same thing. Different. <laughs> Twenty years later. Yep. Or jump on a Zoom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> call coffee chat, as we in LinkedIn like to call it. Like right. coffee chat means just get on and talk about your business with each other, and just I joke and I say. My whole thing in new business or business development is take the meeting. Like, I didn't know you up until today, right now. And this is like the first meeting we're having is your podcast. So that's cool, you know, but like, you just never know where a meeting is going to take you. And I joke and say 99 times out of 100, it'll be really cool. You'll make a new friend. You might, you know, get some business out of it. One time out of 100, it's a crypto scheme or an MLM. So be prepared for that. But, you know, most of the time it works out pretty well. Yeah. That's a hundred percent. I, we, I was telling you, I have another podcast, the insurance dudes. And every once in a while we were doing a ton of interviews for a while. And every once in a while there would be that one interview and it would be very, very difficult. But for the most part, it was really fun to meet new people, talk to new people, but I'd say one out of 20, it was like, I don't know what to say. Like we, we cannot do this. Like I cannot sit here. Look at the for, time. Gotta yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny. so funny. Cool. Well, um, I'd love to. So during that 15 years, and I love marketing. I love, I mean, everything from when I was growing up, I loved infomercials and just, well, infomercials are huge. 
Um, They're their own kind of thing. Now we call that DRTV, direct response television. (laughs) Yes. Those days we called it infomercials. Yeah. Isn't it so funny? Like 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 a video sales letter or, I mean, it's all the same principles. A webinar. I mean, a webinar is an infomercial. Basically. Yeah. Just in a different skin, you know? Yeah. Same, same stuff, different way of looking at it. So yeah, it is interesting to see how it's evolved though over time. Just like the used to be, we would maybe in a campaign, like a campaign have five assets about, you'd have like a TV spot, maybe depending on your market, you might have a radio spot, you'd have a billboard, you'd have a print ad, maybe in the earliest stages of digital, you would have some sort of like a social or digital ad that drove people to the website for conversion. That was it. That was the campaign. Now that campaign is fragmented into hundreds, if not thousands of pieces of content. So it's gotten a lot more complex to deliver from like a delivery standpoint and also from a content creation standpoint for ad agencies or marketers. So I understand why a lot of marketers are overwhelmed by the prospect of making a thousand pieces of content instead of making five. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd love to dive into this more, especially since you've seen the evolution through the, through the really such a turning point, especially when you started, because that I think 2007 was iPhone. And then that was also right around Facebook. And then like the next year was the app store. The app store was like the year that really took the iPhone from being like a, like a novelty into something like, wow, like this is starting to be extremely useful. And then of course, Facebook going on to, (laughs) onto the phone and then all the other Social platform. I still had the iPod because we didn't have the music on the phone yet. And then just getting the music onto the phone and the camera onto the phone were two huge innovations that we just didn't have at the beginning. So yeah, yeah, it's wild to think about how far it's come. Now we can shoot like 4K video and photo on the phone. It's like unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So crazy. So you're talking about the five, you know, the five um, platform content back then. And then now it's, you know, a million pieces. Like, what was the evolution of that like? And like, what's the ratio now of digital to, you know, traditional? Well, I mean, lots of brands just function 100% digitally, especially service-based businesses. So that's been interesting to see that evolution. I mean, there's definitely still the experimentation that goes on, like we don't, you don't ever want to put all your eggs in one basket, you know, as it relates to social channels or tactics, like it still can, now it's like disruptive to do billboards. Like it was interesting. I don't know if you've like followed along with what Airbnb has done with kind of their, their pendulum swing. I always talk about the pendulum always swings, you know, back and forth. So for a while, you know, they started with the brand marketing, then they focused in on performance marketing more so didn't have the same kind of results, went back to like a brand marketing push there's some really great billboards. You can look them up online. But during COVID, they had some billboards like in LA and the Bay Area and New York that were just like, we miss traveling too. Uh, it's like a universal sentiment we all had, right? When we were trapped in our houses and wished we could get back on the planes and trains and everything. And, yep. and we couldn't. Um, so, you know, even something like that, like out of home billboards that you would think, oh, that's dead. That's a dead medium. Nobody uses that anymore. Well, we still drive. We still walk, we still get out of our houses, we still are exposed to those types of ads. And of course, like all the way down to Times Square and some of the really innovative digital billboards that you can do now over like multi screens and, you know, virtual reality, augmented reality, things popping out at you, you know, so I think 
always we've looked to Asia as far as like what's possible in advertising. Mm. And also Brazil is extremely innovative with their advertising. So looking to other countries that are oftentimes a little bit ahead of us in some of that creativity is always interesting if you've gotten into exploring global advertising or marketing work. It's always fun to see what's going on. My sister-in-law is Korean. And so just like looking at what Korea is doing, especially with skincare, like they're just light years ahead of where we are. So those in the know get like Korean beauty skincare. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. Oh, I have to geek out on that. I have to check out all that stuff. It's funny because you always think, you know, the U.S. is on the forefront. Well, I mean, to compare with most countries, usually. In many ways we are, but in other ways, you know, we let yeah. certain things limit us, whether it's governmental regulatory oversight or it's just like, you know, what we we see as being like at the forefront, you know, other cultures would see differently. So, yeah, it's always interesting when you look at like international awards like Cannes and others where it's like what's going on all over the world, you know. So I always find that fascinating. Yeah. Did during the billboard when they made those billboards did they take pictures of the billboards saying that and then post it all over the internet? Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, like, so yeah, good. you can find the pictures of the billboards and their whole um, positioning now is belong anywhere or belong, mm. belong everywhere, I think. Um, and so that notion of like belonging anywhere, like that's tied to the everyman archetype, like belonging is the motivation of the everyman. So like, that's why something like Airbnb, like it's for everyone. Or Ikea, yeah. it's for everyone, or or not Levi's because they're on my S list <laughs> as of recently, <laughs> but Gap or, you know, like these McDonald's, like these brands that like, they're, or Target's a really great every man brand as well. It's like, they're for everyone. Um, but it's interesting. I do a lot of, of that brand archetype work with my clients now with Pitcher. And it's just interesting to help people dial in because like, you could sell the same thing 12 different ways, like with 12 different lenses. Like I use the word performance a lot. It's like, what performance looks like to a lover archetype looks really different than what it looks like to a ruler or a magician or to an explorer. So yeah, if you, if you've never really dug into Carl Jung's archetypes, they're really cool to apply to branding. It's something I like to do. I will definitely dive into that. This book right here is like the book I love. It's always sitting on my desk. It's called archetypes in branding, a toolkit for creatives and strategists. So this Ooh. is one. There's several, but this is one I really like to use. I'll have to check that out. That's awesome. I love I love marketing strategy, especially when it comes to w going deep on just personality types. I was just talking to somebody about how it's so funny. Like we all have the way our <coughs> brains work. It's all based on experience, right? Like everything that we know, believe and everything is based on our past. Well, we all have a very unique past. Not two people are alike. So then it's like, well, then communication gets real tough because we're trying to communicate different things, but from the views of, of our own lenses. And then it's like, then you realize, oh, people are different. And then you realize like, oh my gosh, it's so different. And then, you know, the data points, like where can we, how can we make the message clear to, you know, that perfect client avatar or there's, it's just so, so many layers that you can go down. It's so it's true. It's actually, that's a really good perspective that you mentioned, Jason, about like everyone coming from a different place. I don't know if anyone has seen that certain companies like Etsy and others have asked people recently, do you want to opt out of Mother's Day marketing or Father's Day marketing? Because 
not everyone has a mother in their life. Not everyone has a father mm. that's in their life, or maybe they have a complicated relationship with infertility or child loss, or maybe they chose not to be a parent, like are childless by choice. And so I think, and I'm a parent to two young kids, they're seven and four. So like, to me, when I get Mother's Day stuff, like it doesn't bother me. It's great. I'm like, great, right. Mother's Day, you know, but, um, but I can see that for people with a different lived experience, that that could be painful or something that they don't want to receive. So just sort of this like opting in and opting out, I think is an interesting thing to think about when you think about market marketing in general. Yeah. I think that's it. I mean, it's a good thing. And then it's like, at what point do we live in a world that's just tailored to ourselves? And then we're just so shut out from each other. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. if I, mm -hmm. you know, I lost, I like, I lost my dad, but like, well, I guess that. I'm a dad now. So, but I don't know. It, I don't know. It's good to think about everything. I like thinking about how we all have different experiences. I, what a sad world it is. If you like, I love learning about other people and different archetypes and just different personalities. And I don't know, like where people have come from. That's why I like, I love doing podcasts and just meeting people because it's so interesting to me. It would just be sad to me that if we all had the opportunity to just opt out of everybody else's opinions, except our own, then it's like, dude, we're going to go nuts. You know? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, especially like in the kind of politically charged climate that we live in and things feel more polarized than ever, you know, how I lean politically, you know, I actually don't like to be in an echo chamber of only people of my same political persuasion, because I think it's important for me to hear other perspectives. Like I want to know how the other side feels. And if you ever hope to convince anybody to change their position on a particular perspective, whether it's somebody in your own family, maybe you disagree with or a friend or just anybody that you encounter. I think that's like, that's part of marketing and advertising is persuasion. And mm -hmm. you have to be willing to hear the other side to know whether you can or could persuade them to change their mind. Yep. So don't create an echo chamber for yourself. However, I do agree with some of the opt out stuff because certain things can be triggering, can be damaging. Like I mentioned to you, Jason, before we started recording that you know, there were some weight loss ads recently on LinkedIn that I took them to task about because I'm an eating disorder survivor and I've been in recovery from that now for 15 years, but I was anorexic for 10 years. Like I really don't want to see weight loss ads for quote, the perfect body on LinkedIn where I'm trying to conduct my business. Like right. I, I have said, like, I thought that was the only safe corner of the internet left for me. Like I stay off TikTok, I stay off Instagram, I stay off places where I would be triggered buy content about people's bodies and what they look like and where and whatever, because that's just not healthy for me. So I'm like, you know, what's sure. great about LinkedIn. There's none of that, except recently there was. <laughs> and mm. so then it's like, okay, I think for someone like me, that being my lived experience, I would like to be able to opt out. Like, can I opt out of the things that trigger me? Can people who are recovering alcoholics out opt out of alcohol ads, perhaps? Like, I think right. that's a positive thing. And it's not, you know, like clouding your worldview. You know, alcohol exists if you're an alcoholic. You know, you know, diet pills exist if you're an anorexic. But like, do you need to be bombarded with messages about them? I think you should be able to opt out. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree too. I, I agree on that. I mean, I, I used to have an alcohol problem and I don't drink anymore. And it would be nice to opt out, although I don't care. But, you know, there are those, maybe there are those times that are, that are triggering and stuff. It's kind of like your friends, right? Like you choose, you, you know, 
when you're young, you think that you have to have these friends and then you get older and you realize, oh, wait, I can choose them. And like, well, I don't like that attitude. I don't want to be around that person. They just bring me down. So it's definitely good to be able to, you know, curate your life, curate your life, (laughs) create your own life. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have the choice to opt in or opt out or whatever. So, but that brings me up to a, a good um, segue into LinkedIn. You're very active on LinkedIn. That is true. <laughs> yeah, I think that's how I met Kalika, who uh, you're connected to on your team. So, yes. yeah, yeah, LinkedIn is wild uh, right now. It's very different. If if any of your listeners have not been on LinkedIn in a while, come check it out. It's quite different than probably the last you were there. There is a lot of activity. It is does it seem more like a going in the Facebook direction? You know, a lot of people complain about that or have that as a complaint. Like this doesn't belong on LinkedIn. This isn't a professional topic or whatever. And I think as someone who's creating content on LinkedIn, you have to choose what to share. Like for an example, um, like I mentioned, I'm a mom, I have two little kids. And so I did talk a lot about being a parent during the pandemic and also working a VP level job and what that was like. And I follow a lot of other parent creators on LinkedIn because like we're talking about, you know, the intersection point, the intersectionality of like being a parent and being an executive or, you know, the intersectionality of being a woman and being black and what that experience is like as an employee or being gay or being, you know, disabled, any of those things. Like those are things that do impact your work. And like you can't just stop being who you are when you walk into your office for eight or 10 hours a day, you know, it's like, you don't take off your identity, you don't take off what you care about and who you are. Um, So I think that's been interesting to see how people are talking about those intersection points. And like my experience as this type of person in this type of industry, how does that impact me and my life? And some people could say, Oh, that content belongs on Facebook. But frankly, I'm done with Facebook. Like I've been done. Like I don't go on it anymore. I have an account like, but I'm done, you know, like, for me, I can only go down one rabbit hole at a time, personally. <laughs> right. I just don't, as now a parent and an entrepreneur, I don't have time. Like, I would love to spend time on TikTok, but I just don't have the hours in the day to do it. So LinkedIn is my rabbit hole du jour right now. <laughs> nice. It, it's so funny, too, like talking to a bunch of different entrepreneurs and people that it's in a lot of the p- people you s- you'll see them on multiple platforms. But it seems like everybody has their one platform that they actually pay attention to, you know? Because it's like so true. It's just unless you have a team, if you have a team creating content for you and distributing it in a bunch of different places, then you can appear to be more places at once than you actually are. But for me, I'm actually doing it all myself as a solo. So yeah, there's only so many hours. I tell my clients all the time, money is infinite and time is finite. Like a lot of people be like, oh, money's not infinite, like, or you're having money problems or whatever. But it's like, but money can make more money. Like if you invest mm-hmm. it properly, it can make more money. You can also print more money. <laughs> like the government can literally print more money. So, you know, money <laughs> is, and they do. So money is yeah. like this thing that is very like, you know, it, it's expansive, it's infinite. You can always get more. You can always find people who need, you know, to hire you for something and you can make money doing that, but you can't make more time right. that I know of yet. I'd like to find out how, but, you know, still working on that. Truth. You can buy other people's time with money, but you cannot add to your own, your own time. That's for sure. Yeah. That's the, um, that's the, uh, yeah. Like you have to be real careful of your time. Uh, Like that's the one thing that I've seen with 
I wouldn't say more successful people, but I mean, I guess people that are more, I guess more successful <laughs> is that like they start getting real careful of their time and protecting that, that piece. And, you know, us parents, I'm a parent too. I have a three, five, seven, no, eight, three, five, eight, and 11 year old. Okay. Yep. So I'm in the same zone, but you have d- double the amount of kids that I do. So yeah, it's you <laughs> and <yeah>. your wife. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it is, man. I mean, like you're, you know, I mean, even if, if you're paying attention to one platform, you got your kids around, it's like, you got to put your phone down, but then you're used to kind of like looking at it, you know, and uh, it's like, uh, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to balance it all. It's very um, hard. Yeah. I, I'm working on presence. That's something I have to work on because I'm a big like vision future thinker. Like in business same. development, you're taught to like think ahead, like think blue sky, blue ocean. Like if legal's yeah. not involved yet, if the client hasn't said no, if money is no option, what will we tell them to do? Or let's look at like the five-year plan or the 10-year plan. Where are we going? What do you want to achieve and by when? Like all those things. It's like, that's how we're trained to think as strategists and business developers. I am so bad at like the weeds of like the here and now and like get checking things off like a to-do list, like it's really hard. And then also just like being present with my kids, but they demand it, you know, they're like, no, no, put the phone down. Like right now, look at me, do the thing, play the game, watch the show, color the, the coloring page, you know? So trying to work on that. Like last night, my daughter had a Girl Scouts event. I just put the phone away and like, fully immersed and participated in it. Like you can always come back to the work, but yeah, you can't always be there for them when they need you. So that's an advantage of entrepreneurship. Like the freedom part of things, I think um, makes it a lot more possible for parents. If you can can balance, you know, growing a business with, you know, being a parent, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, it is really tough. I mean, even if you work from like, I work from home some days and, and, um, even on the weekends, I, I do pick up my phone. It's hard not to, one of my, my highest um, things on, I think it's Clifton Strength, is futurist. So I'm always like planning. Like it's so hard for me to just be present because I'm like thinking of, oh, we can do this, we can do this. Like um, instead of just going, dude, you're doing this right now. Like you're five years ago, Jason would have loved to just sit there and play with, you know, this little toy. And then sometimes it's like, there's so much going on that like, um, to sit there and play with my daughter with like little toys. It's like, ah, I get so bored, like real quickly with it. I'm like, dude, you got to realize like, this is one of those things that you're never going to get back. So I've been trying to do that. Like this morning she had, um, these little mini dolls and we're dressing them up and I'm just like, just, I have to pull myself down and go be cognizant of this is a short window and you'll kick yourself in the future. If you look back and you're like, dude, I, I would do anything to do that with her again. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Well, and that's like where you were saying, like, is LinkedIn becoming Facebook? Like I, one of my better performing posts in the last year was my son was homesick. It was like a Tuesday morning. It was 10 o'clock in the morning. And he was like, mommy, have a dino battle with me and dino battle is where he takes all his dinosaurs and he lines them up in pairs of two and smashes them together and they have a fight yeah. and there's a winner and a loser but he has like you know 50 of them lined up in these pairs so it's like this big long line in our living room so i just took a picture of him with his dino battle set up and then i wrote so a post cool. about it where i was like 
you know, one of the great things about being an entrepreneur is I can't have a 10 a.m. dino battle on a Tuesday <laughs> with Leo, you know? So yeah, you can really, you can talk about stuff that's happening in your personal life, but like relate it to like what it is you're doing in your line of work. If you're an entrepreneur, if you're someone's employee or the head of marketing or whatever, it's just like, connect those dots for people. So they understand like, this is about professionalism, but it's about like where professionalism intersects with life. Yeah. I love that. I, and going back to you being like a solopreneur and, um, I, I feel like LinkedIn, Twitter, and newsletters are right now the big, the big thing for solopreneurs to really get their voice out there and be able to, to grow organically. Um, unlike other platforms. Like I, I don't see that on any of the other platforms right now much. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. For some reason I'm banned for Twitter. I don't know why, <laughs> like maybe somebody caught a hold of it and did some spammy stuff with my account at some point, or I don't know why, but I've tried to go back on and they're like, your account is banned. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm just dumb, done with Twitter then. <laughs> oh my gosh. So yeah, I'm not on Twitter. I mean, I have a Facebook page, but I'm not on it. I have an Instagram account, you know, for picture and a LinkedIn page for it. But mostly people just hit up me about they like I am picture picture is me. So like they know it's me. <laughs> and I have like probably five times the following for myself, like me, my personal page than I do for my company's page. So I don't get a lot of engagement on my company page. And I don't think most do because frankly, it comes across looking like an ad. And nobody wants to interact with an ad. We want to interact with a human. So right. it's fine that I have 1,500, you know, people that follow Pitcher, but I have 7,000 people that follow Nora. So that's where I get more traction. And so a lot of times I am just talking about like myself and my own experiences and how that's like intersecting with my professional work. And now that I'm starting a second company with my partner, Eric, you know, Blood, Sweat and Tears, like we're going to have a totally different audience, a totally different like subject. But yeah, people, people know you, the person, they don't necessarily know you, the company. Yeah. And do you, do you feel that that has changed? Like, like I look, I'm old, so I, I was born in 1979, but like during the eighties, it's like you had Coca-Cola and like all the brands didn't really have much of a face. And then, you know, the Steve jobs and, and all these, um, the Elon Musk's and, and kind of made the entrepreneur cool. And then now it's just, you know, you look at like Russell Brunson, like, or any of these marketers or there's people, there's a lot of faces now that are like out there and it's Bartlett almost like, or yeah. Yeah. Austin and the Welsh. companies mm -hmm. like back there, it almost doesn't matter. You, you name any company, it doesn't matter. They can name it, you know, whatever. And people are going to follow because they're actually following them rather than the brand. Yeah, I think that kind of came along with the rise of influencers and creators. It's like we trust influencers and humans more than we trust brands inherently. That's just human nature. You know, like you would trust a recommendation on a restaurant from your friend more than you would trust the restaurant saying the restaurant was good, right? right. So like that's always inherently been the problem with advertising. And then what's been interesting is to see the rise of like the creator economy or the influencer sphere. Um, now those people are monetizing that opportunity as they should, you know, they're working, they're doing work. Um, so there's a really great site, FYPM, which stands for F you pay me. And, and it actually like tells you what every company is paying their influencers now. And they do some really fun content. I, I can't remember the founder's name, but she's awesome. Like she just posted one where she was like, 
twerking in Home Depot is like when you find out that Home Depot pays $20,000 for their content, like <laughs> for a post. That's funny. It was so funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, like that, I mean, Mr. Beast would be an example of that, you know, Gary Vee, like all these creators that are creating, they're entrepreneurs in their own right, but they're creating brands or they're endorsing brands and just then creating whole entire worlds around themselves. And it's funny because a lot of times when I talk about like branding a company or naming a company, I will tell people don't name it after yourself. <laughs> which is maybe strange advice in the like realm of like this creator economy that we're in. But for the most part, like when you're thinking about a company, if you just put like the name, like if I had called instead of calling pitcher pitcher, I had called it Denuso consulting. Well, like my name doesn't mean anything to anyone. Also it's impossible to spell. So like that already is shooting myself in the foot that nobody knows how to spell my last name. So I use the analogy of a industry party like say your clients and your best prospective clients are all at this industry party. Maybe it's a, you know, surrounding a trade show or something, but you're sick or you're on vacation and you can't go. So those people are in mingling in that room. And someone says, you know what I really need is a growth strategist on my business. And someone that knows me goes, oh, well, you really need to talk to Nora Denuso. She runs this company called Pitcher and that's what she does. She helps brands grow. Okay. Like free scene. I wasn't there. I didn't have my business card. They didn't have my business card. They probably don't know my website. They don't have my pitch deck. All they had was my name and my company's name. And that is how so much gets communicated. Like how people advocate for you, go to bat for you, refer you. They don't, they don't know your brand. Like, you know, your brand, they don't have your assets in front of them. All they can tell people is your name and your company name. So mm. it was funny. This was a, a post. <laughs> this is one of my more controversial posts on LinkedIn, actually, which is funny because I'm not really a controversial person, but a lot of people like took umbrage with this, especially coaches because coaches name their business after themselves quite frequently. <laughs> um, but it was all based on Erin Balsa, if you follow her. So she for a while called her business Erin Balsa content marketing. And she was like, it was so awkward that I would go to all of these industry events and be like, hi, I'm Erin Balsa from Erin Balsa content marketing. She's like, that just sounds stupid. So she ended yeah. up rebranding it as um, House of Bold, I think is what it's called, like H-A-U-S, so House of Bold. So, but like she always got credit for boldness in her strategy or in her brand work and so in her content. So she's like, I'm going to call it something to do with bold, you know, and now she can be like, I'm Aaron Balsa from House of Bold. And that's just like much, much better, much easier to say. But yeah, for my friends, like one of my friends who's a coach, Lauren Lefkowitz, she won't mind me saying this, but she has the same problem as Denuso. Like, how do you spell Lefkowitz? You know, oh, yeah. so yeah, yeah. <laughs> you run into that challenge, I think, when you name something after yourself. But of course, I had people on that post being like, well, what about Harley Davidson? And what about Eddie Bauer? I'm like, well, that's how we used to name brands, but those are old dead white guys. So that's not like the contemporary strategy for naming a brand. Yeah. What, and what do you, okay. So like, this is interesting because like going back to you and your brand and your name on LinkedIn, like you have so many more followers for you, but you almost have to have that brand for recognition uh, that it is like a service, right? It's not just you and it's easy, you know, but like, do you find it with other brands, like having that character that, that well, the attractive character or the uh, spokesperson or the Elon Musk is a must nowadays? 
I mean, it works for certain people and not others. So it definitely is like a case by case basis. I mean, like Gary Vaynerchuk's probably a great example, like in the advertising world, like his company's called VaynerMedia and like everyone calls him Gary V. And it's like, so people know who Gary V is. So more, more people probably follow him than actually know what he's doing at Vayner or he has like some other companies he's created. Like I think one is called Sasha and like there's some other ones. Like I'm not particularly a Gary V fan. Sorry, Gary, but like, I just can't get past the shouting. Like I've often joked and said, if someone would re-record all of Gary V's content in like a Billie Eilish style whisper, then I could <laughs> absorb it all. But yeah, usually the yelling bro thing kind of alienates me. So I just, I, I can't dial in. Like we all have a different way of like liking to receive information and shouting right. is not it for me. So Sorry, Gary. But um, yeah, or like I said, Mr. Beast, or like there are definitely examples of like a creator that has built the whole universe around him or herself. And it's all about their name. And like, that's one potential strategy, you know, but I would say, if you want to build something that extends beyond yourself, like if you don't want to be the face of your company, or you want your company to stand for more than just you and stand for maybe more of like a conceptual idea. Like for me, pitcher, like the logo is a lemonade pitcher, but also it's a double entendre, which I love in strategy and naming things, which is that I'm literally a pitcher. Like I've pitched hundreds of brands in my career. So like I talk about it as like a concept, but also like what's more quintessentially small business than a lemonade stand? Like it's like the first yeah. entrepreneurial venture any kid does, you know, when they're little and my kids are, you know, plotting their lemonade stand as we speak. So um, <laughs> there was sort of that connection point there too. Like I wanted my whole career to work with small businesses and was always told like, no, you got to pitch bigger, bigger and do the fortune 500 stuff, which is where the ad agency world plays. So, I mean, it's like a cost of doing business that you really can't work with small businesses when you're working in and for ad agencies. So yeah, going off on my own to consult, like it was a passion point that I wanted to work with small businesses and help them grow. So what better uh, icon than something to do with lemonade? I love that. That is so cool. That is such a cool concept. I, I didn't I didn't even realize that you showed me the card, but I, I it almost looked like a flower. Like I couldn't. Oh, yeah. But, here, um, I'll zoom in for you. <laughs> it's like a little lemonade so cool. pic yeah. picture and it's it has like a little talk bubble. It's like talking to you. <laughs> Super cool. Love it. So um, I love the idea, too, of working with smaller brands. It is funny, like. It is funny, like how we feel. Everybody puts their own. Opinions on the way we're supposed to do things, but man, when you do what you love, when you do what you like, truly are passionate about, like you couldn't shine more than than being that person. So like you doing that, it's like, and that's what you want to do. I mean, I'm sure like the passion comes across to your clients like crazy and I'm sure that they just love it. Yeah. I mean, I think also they appreciate that someone wants to help them because that's the thing, you know, it's like small business and now being, it's like, you can't understand a founder until you become a founder is what I've figured out, you know? So I had to do it for myself to get in their mindset. And like, that's always what we're trying to do as strategists is understand like, where is our target audience coming from? So when I was doing, you know, more B2C type of things and thinking about strategies for like, how do we get more people to buy Nissan Top Ramen or Dum Dums Lollipops or whatever the thing was that we were pitching, you know, it's like, how do you get in the mindset of the consumer, the end user that's buying that product and what matters to them? So when we're talking about B2B and you talked about how you're a 
dealing with insurance a lot, Jason, and working with those types of clients. Okay, well, there, what's the mindset of an insurance agent or an insurance company that you might be working with? Or in my case, like, what's the mindset of a founder or a small business owner? What are their pain points? What are their problems? What do they need help with? What keeps them up at night? You know, so getting in that, like what we would call a psychographic mindset. Mm. So it's not demographically, those founders may have nothing in common. They may be different ages, different genders, different, you know, ethnicities or whatever. But psychographically, what do they all have in common? What keeps them up at night? Well, for founders, usually of small businesses, it's cash flow. If you don't have cash flow, ain't nothing happening <laughs> in your business. And so it's been interesting to sort of like wrap my head around that and then think about, you know, because cash flow is king, like meeting founders where they are, even as it pertains to like how I work with or service founders, like it doesn't have to all be one way. Like if it's not working for this type of a business, like there's no reason I can't modify my service offering to like meet them where they are to a point. I mean, the only thing I've struggled with is founders in other countries where their currency is weak relative to the US dollar. You know, I was talking to a really cool founder in Guatemala and he was saying, I love your help, but you know, it's like eight Guatemalan dollars to one US dollar. So mm. me charging $500 an hour or even $250 an hour would be like completely cost prohibitive. He was like, but I could do $50 an hour, $100 an hour. I was like, well, I can't really devalue my service like that far, <sighs> right? Because right? it's like, I talk about the ceiling and the floor. I'm like, okay, well, under $100 an hour, I'm in the basement. Like I can't be in the basement, yeah. okay? <laughs> you can't be like, you know, giving your time away like for something under like its value, right? But you can do what I say as like getting creative, you can get creative, like, could I record like a, a podcast or a presentation? And then could I sell that content to all kinds of founders who need that foundational knowledge about pricing strategy, brand strategy, content strategy, all the things I tell my clients about. But like, when I'm consulting one on one, it's about you and your business, Jason, not about like all businesses everywhere, you know, right. but if you're going to do the one to many approach with content, yeah, then you can charge. 25 bucks a pop, 50 bucks a pop. That's much more possible. But yeah, I can't give people custom advice on their business under a certain threshold. It just doesn't, you know, doesn't make sense for me financially. Right. 100%. So going a little bit into brand and for small businesses, what are some of the pitfalls that you see, like, especially people in service businesses and and stuff like what are what are some of the like the top three problems that you see? Hmm. Okay. Well, outside of cash flow, so I would say yeah. confidence, confidence, okay. um, consistency mm. would be another one. Those two things are very closely tied together. And then probably the last one is just not knowing what you don't know. Like if you don't know what you don't know. So like on the confidence piece, I hear a lot of founders tell me they don't want to brag about themselves. You know, it's like, oh, everyone already knows what I do, or no one wants to hear me talk about myself ad nauseum. And it's like, okay, well, if you can't be your own hype man or woman, you are very quickly going to be out of business because mm. no one's going to hype you like you. No one knows your business like you know your business. You have to get comfortable with being your own hype man or woman. Like that is essential if you run your own business. No one's going to do it for you. So like, you know, that's a self-confidence issue that I think a lot of founders struggle with because they just feel like, I don't know what to say, how to say it. How, should I say it too? Am I talking about myself too often? Am I bragging? Like, mm -hmm. is it coming across the wrong way? Is it rubbing people the wrong way? And I think there are ways to do it that don't rub people the wrong way. But, you know, what's the alternative? You never talk about yourself again and then your business goes out of business. Like, that's not a positive alternative. So 
that's the other point is consistency. Some people actually do have a pretty thoughtful positioning about their brand, but they're just not consistent enough with it because a lot of, especially solopreneurs, not only are they marketing and promoting themselves on things like podcasts, but then they're also servicing their clients and running the business and doing whatever work it is they're selling. So like when I sell strategy work, then I go do the strategy work (laughs) with my clients. So like that push and pull of like, I have to market myself, I have to talk about myself, but also I have to get the work done for my clients that have hired me. Because if you're not servicing the clients well that have hired you, then they're not going to be your clients for very long. So that's like the plight of the solopreneur is like how to talk about yourself consistently enough to get traction and get people to know Mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, Nora helps small businesses grow or Pitcher helps small businesses grow. That's why you should call Nora, you know? So like, I have to say that and hammer that enough in many different ways and many different like, you know, pieces like I call breadcrumbs of content, like take a baguette, your baguette is like your whole story and then smush it into like a million breadcrumbs. Those are all your pieces of content that make up your story. But yeah, yeah. you have to like, you have to create the breadcrumbs and you have to sprinkle the breadcrumbs consistently enough that people can find the trail to you is how I would kind of use that analogy. Yeah, I can relate to that too because it's very hard. I found it very hard to talk about because I still feel I always talk about like big Jason and little Jason, like that that little boy that grew up and that you know all the past experience. It's like it's hard for me to to talk about me of like the things that like accomplishments because I still don't feel like that or you know you know what I mean. So it's like hard. And then when you do talk about it, it's like ugh, like. I don't know. It's like, yeah, you don't want to feel like you're bragging or I don't know. It's just, it's, it's awkward. It's always more comfortable (laughs) when you have like an external hype man or hype woman or wing woman or whatever. Um, And I play that role sometimes for my clients where I'll be like, literally go walk a trade show with them. And then we go up as a duo to a booth. And then when the person at the booth asks what we do, I'm like, Oh, well, my friend Pete over here does this and you have to like, he's amazing, you know, so it's like, sometimes it's just like having somebody ride along with you that hypes you up. Like that's the role of the business developer, right? Because like, I used to tell people all the time, because I'd be like the front line having the conversation and getting to know them. And is this a good fit for the agency? And eventually someone would say something to the effect of like, oh, I wish you would work on my business. Like if we hire you, will you be working on the business? I'm like, oh, hell no, I'm not going to be working on the business. I'm going to be pitching the next thing, you know? So it's like that notion of like, well, don't fall in love with me. I'm just like the hype woman, you know, right? like I'm the agency's hype woman. So you will now work with like, you know, the client service team and the creative team and they're great. You're not going to work with me though, because yeah, my role is always to like be the hype woman externally. So yeah, I mean, you just have to figure out like how to play that role though, either play it for yourself or a lot of people do hire people like me to be their business development, like outsource or in-house. Like I was in-house for a long time for agencies. Like that's a full-time role and it's, it's not a small salary. And usually there's like performance compensation too. So, but it's very valuable because you can directly tie that role. It's like usually pure overhead. Like nobody's paying for that role in an agency except the agency itself. But, you know, if you're bringing in 20 to 40 times your salary, then you're a pretty valuable team player. So, Mm. you know, it's a worthwhile investment if you can if you can make the investment. It's funny that you brought up Gary Vee before and like relating it to this. He is a great hype man for himself. All he he talks about. I am the, like the best entrepreneur and like like everything he says, he literally tells people exactly what to think about him. Like constantly. And it's just the same exact message. 
his messages are very like you could write him down on a little tiny note card and it, he just goes through them every time, you know, you see him. Mm-hmm. So well, funny. consistency. I mean, he's very successful. Like he's consistent. You know, he's hitting yeah. those, those messages. I wish you wouldn't shout, Gary. Try a whisper <laughs> once in a while. Could, could go a long way. Or cuss. Like it, I don't mind cussing, but I mean, it just limits. Um, well, us being parents and stuff, I'm not going to like I have to have my earphone in if I'm going to see him. Like if I see him and it's like I have to change it like I you know, mm-hmm, at least for me. Mm-hmm. I, that one's tough know. for me because growing up in the ad world and working for mostly men and around men, <laughs> and I'm from Boston. So uh, needless to say, I definitely swear myself. So that's been an interesting one to try to control around parents and or clients yeah. sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a weird one. I And I used to a lot and I just yeah, being a parent, uh, really being a parent, being a parent changed everything because then, yeah, you're around other parents. It's just one less thing to like, I just don't want to deal with, you know, like. <laughs> but I feel weird when I find myself saying things like darn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who said yeah. that? Like, I wouldn't say that normally, but yeah. You right. <laughs> to modify your speech a little bit. <laughs> right. So true. Okay. And the third one, I want to go back to cash flow. So how do you handle that with um, clients? Well, that's what's been interesting. And it's a, it's part of the reason, you know, we're working on Blood, Sweat and Tears as like another track. Um, my partner, Eric, and I is because it, I mean, when I set out, I think I'm a kind of like an optimistic rose colored glasses sort of person, just generally, like I'm an optimist. And so this whole time that I'm wanting to work with small businesses and being told, no, that this doesn't work for like our business model and everything, like I got it. But also I was like, well, why has no one done this? Or, you know, I keep thinking I'm going to stumble upon someone who's already doing what I'm doing and I'm not finding that many. And I'm wondering if it's because people have tried it and have failed in the past or found that like it just didn't work because of cash flow concerns. Like, I'm not going to lie. It is tricky because you could be going along working with a small business and it could be great, but they could lose their biggest client. And all of a sudden they can't pay your invoice or all of a sudden they can't pay their team and the business folds, you know? So a lot of stuff is operating on this really razor thin edge that like one bad piece of news, one thing goes wrong. It upends the whole apple cart in a way it doesn't for big business. So I think, you know, what I'm trying to do with pitcher is like Robin hood, some of the learning for, from how business, big business grows to how small business could grow or be more successful or grow more effectively or more quickly, because there are definitely ways to do it. I mean, I joke, though, and say like small business is not in the habit of lighting money on fire. Whereas like in big business, you often have these budgets in marketing that are like use it or lose it, quote unquote, like you had this budget from last year. If you show us that you don't use the whole budget this year, you're not going to get as much budget next year. So a lot of times halfway or, you know, three quarters of the way through the year, we'd be getting calls at the agency like, I have $500,000 left to spend in my use it or lose it budget. So I got to make something. And it's like, they're making something under duress that maybe is or is not strategic. And they're just trying Mm -hmm. to burn through money, like literally burn through money. So (laughs) that doesn't happen in small business because, you know, we're playing with, uh, you know, we're not gambling, but like, but we're playing with sometimes like, you know, our life savings, our 401k, our kids college fund, you know, we're making bets on ourselves to like, hopefully like level up later. And so, I kind of say that like small businesses moves in these step changes, which is very different than how big business moves. So if you want to grow in small business, you might, you know, get enough money or get enough new clients or whatever that you can like 
do your website. So it's like, okay, I took the little step. Okay, now my website's not optimized. So I need to do like an SEO strategy. Okay, got enough money. I'm going to do that. And you move. And that's how my business too is moving as, as well. It's like, oh, I really want to hire this cash flow consultant, but I don't have enough cash to hire the cash flow consultant. So what am I going to do? I'm going to wait till I get enough cash. Okay, now I'm going to hire the cash flow consultant. Okay, now my cash flow is better. Okay, now I'm going to hire an ops specialist because I hate project management. You know, so it's like we all move in these little step changes. Big business has these enormous buckets of money that they, in the best of years, basically it's like a gasoline to throw on a fire. And it's like, which fire should we throw it on? Because they've got, you know, 20 different fires cooking. They've got innovation. They've got, you know, the new product. They've got the old product and optimizing that. They have the new flavor. They have this. It's like, there's all these different things that they could put the, pour the gasoline on the fire, but it's like, which fire? Which fire is going to get us like the most rocket fuel, basically? So big business, when they throw the, the gasoline on the right fire, like, like a rocket, they can get shoot up exponentially small business. It's very much these step changes to growth. So that is important to understand, like when you come into some money or into some cash flow, a positive cash flow, what are you going to do next to get to your next little level up? So that's where somebody like me can be like, well, here are all the possible levers you could pull, or here's like, I've gotten in under the hood and I've done this diagnostic. And now I figured out all the problems that you have and all the levers you could pull. So the next time you have money, I suggest you pull this lever instead of this one. So yeah, it's been interesting to kind of work with small business and just see how different it is than working with big businesses. Do you find it hard for entrepreneurs because it's like their baby that they don't want to mess with it? Yeah, to a degree. And I think there's also a lot of like treading water going on. It's like, sort of this analysis paralysis, if you will. It's like when you're like, I want to listen to music. So I go to Spotify and I look around for an hour and I get overwhelmed and I can't decide what I want to listen to. So I just don't, I read a book or I try to find a movie on Netflix and I get so overwhelmed that I go to bed <laughs> or right. fall asleep. You know, it's like, I think that a lot of that happens where it's like, this is gets back to the, you don't know what you don't know, which is sort of the other challenge that small businesses have is that you know, I've worked with a lot of clients that don't know anything about marketing because guess what? They're a robotics PhD. And while they were busy getting their robotics PhD, they were not getting a degree in marketing also. So right. they don't know anything about marketing. And so they know they should do it, but they don't know how to do it themselves, nor should they really do it themselves. But here they are in this moment where they're like, well, I need to market my company so I get more money so I can make more robots. But I don't, but should I spend the money now? to hire someone to do the robot marketing or should I just focus on making the robots or should I try to market my mm. robots? And so they get into this whole headspace of like, what should I do? What consultant yeah. should I use? What, what partner should I use? And then it's not readily easily known to you, like who you should use. Then you go places like Fiverr or Upwork and you're trying to find somebody and you're reading all these reviews and you're not sure. So maybe you try somebody and then they ghost you and they take your money. I'm not like shitting on everyone. Excuse my French from like Fiverr, but you know what I mean? Like there are yeah. horror stories, right? Like, right. Or you phone a friend and you're like, wait, who did your website? Who did your whatever? And then you call them. Oh, they took a full-time job again. Oh, they're on maternity leave. Can't do it. Oh, they're booked until September. And it's like, okay, now what? And there's a lot of this like back to square one stuff and this treading mm. water that happens. So it's like, if you just found the right person to help you get to that next level and you didn't tread water for so long, you wouldn't like be so exhausted. So I think that's a lot of what's going on for small businesses is just like not knowing who to call. And that's like the other side of my business is sort of this like matchmaking or brokerage. Like I joke and call it help I need a people will be like, 
they know to call me like I'm a fixer. They're like, Nora, help. I need a website. Who do I, who do I call? I've got $5,000. I've got $10,000. I'm like, okay, cool. I'll like hook you up with somebody. So because my network is extensive, because I'm always working on, you know, cultivating and growing my network, I've got people all over the world who can do the thing you want. Like I tell people all the time, I know people who can do a website for a thousand dollars and I know people who can do it for a hundred thousand dollars. So like, all you have to do is tell me what you want, what your budget is and when you need it done by, and I will find you someone to do it. Love that. That's awesome. Super cool. So as we're wrapping up and thank you for you, I mean, you're going the distance on this one. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I do um, say like, I will talk to a brick wall. So, you know, people <laughs> that find that out then like to have me on their podcast, I guess. <laughs> I love talking. And it's when in one of like our groups that we do, uh, we're only supposed to talk for like an hour and we end up going for an hour and a half. Just eh, like there's always some someone talking about a problem like let's, let's solve it so um but i would love to know what advice would you give some entrepreneur that's in that realm maybe around a hundred thousand dollars they want to grow they don't know what to do they're in that exact situation that that you said what are some things that they could do to help move the needle and gain some clarity yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, for that size of business, typically like a solopreneur, you know, you're kind of in that maybe year one to five zone, you know, depending on what what kind of company you have. So it's like, you know, first thing is really just your offer, like making sure that the offer, the service you're offering, the product you're offering aligns to what your audience needs and wants. So if you're not sure, or if when you're pitching, it's not landing or you're not converting, then you might not actually be hitting on what your audience needs or wants or at a price point that they can afford. So a lot of times it's like figuring out like, is your offer right? And what people don't always realize is like your offer often has to need to needs to change with certain conditions. Like right now we're in like a weird economic climate. So I found that it was much harder in the last six months to sell retainer based agreements that were $5,000 a month because people were like, not sure if I want to spend $5,000 a month right now. You know, like if we're in this like scarcity mindset or moment, you might need to switch up your offer or your pricing strategy to meet people where they are, where your audience is in this moment in time. Or have you resurveyed your target audience, you know, or your buyers post COVID? Like has mm -hmm. their mindset changed? Has their spending habits changed? Are they interested in different things now than they were before? Or has your buyer demographic shifted from, you know, Gen X to millennials or boomers to X or, you know, millennials to Gen Z, because they are have different mindsets. And even within like generations, there are different mindsets within like, you know, millennials span a pretty large generation. So like, the eldest millennials are parents now the youngest millennials, you know, still might be early in their career. That's very different, you know, so you have to know who you're talking to, what you're offering and does your offer align to what your audience needs. That's a thing that like all entrepreneurs should do, but especially if you're still like in that hundred thousand dollar range or under $500,000 range, just make sure that like, you know, that information. And if you don't know it, you got to go out and get it. Like you can't just guess as we like to say, no me search, <laughs> no, like, what do uh, I think, I you like know? <laughs> right. Like you have to go ask, like, I know it's awkward to ask, but like, there are lots of scrappy ways to do research. Like you can talk to your existing customers. You can talk to your competitors, customers. You can talk to like, 
your partners and maybe have other ways to get at it. There are lots of like scrappy research companies where you can do it like for a dollar a survey, but like you got to find out if what you're doing isn't working, you know, the whole like definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. Well, like if it ain't working right now, you probably are going to have to change something. So that would be something I would suggest, you know, either hire somebody like me, that's a consultant to help you think through like how to do that, like how to shift that and figure out the answers to those questions or get scrappy and do it yourself. So yeah, that's something I think not a lot of people think about. Yeah. I love the I, I love the advice to just go ask. I think that that's a lost art. We're always looking for the technology or something to do something where it's like, dude, you got a phone, like call the per- to have a human conversation. Like, oh my gosh, what are you talking about? Dude, we, they used to door knock, like door knocking was normal at one point. Could you imagine that? Like, oh yeah. Well, and the other thing I talk about is like having friendlies in your circle, like people that do what you do, like could be, would be your customers, but maybe they're personal friends and like, they're not buying from you or necessarily going to buy from you, but they know your industry. They know your offer. Ask if you can have a coffee with them. Ask if you can get on a zoom for a half hour or an hour. It'd be like, we just did this today, actually for blood, sweat and tears. Eric and I with a friend of ours that owns an agency. And we don't know if he wants our services or not, but we were like, Oh, Hey Jeff, can we just like run this by you? Like, this is what we're thinking. This is how we're structuring it. What do you think? Just to get feedback, you know? And it's like, somebody like that that's already in your network that's already a friend they would probably be honored and like happy to like be consulted on like their opinion their hot take on like your thing that you're building you know so i think that's another thing you can tap into people forget because no one likes to ask questions like i don't know this whole notion as americans we're like these rugged individualists that never have to ask for help you know like yeah. a lot of people have trouble asking for help But, you know, think about the fact that like most people in your life that you're close to or even have like a, I don't want to say superficial, but you have some sort of just like, you know, surface level professional relationship where they probably be like psyched if you ask them to look at your offer or look at what you're doing, you know, get that little like insight and window into your business. If they're an entrepreneur too, like they'll definitely like founders help founders all the time. Yeah, I love that. And it's so true. I mean, anybody... Gosh, I love geeking out with people about business. Like I'll get into any conversation with anybody. Like when in a gr- room full of people, if I'm going camping or something with my kids and friends, like if somebody's talking about their business, oh, I get into it. Like I love it. And it's so funny that we don't talk about the like we feel awkward about that when it's like, dude, if somebody likes something, they like to talk about it. So it's actually doing them a service by you asking them the question. Like you're actually helping them. Not to mention being vulnerable is what connects us as humans. So not knowing something like who cares? Like I'll research it. I'll go research it for you. Exactly. Or chat GPT will do it for you now, right? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But double check the the, uh, references (laughs) because have you ever gotten anything like create? I've done some research on there and like they, they start mismatching. Mm, I have not used it too much because I frankly like to write and I like to write in my own tone of voice. So I don't usually think to ask a robot to write for me as someone who likes to write, but I get it for people who don't like to write or maybe people who are dyslexic or just like writing doesn't come naturally to like, it would be a huge benefit and boon to have that, you know, to work with. And even my husband likes it. He's more of a creative. So he has to write sometimes, but like he would prefer to like not write and focus on the creativity. And Mm. I think it's, there's really interesting applications, especially on the visual side of things for Mm. pitching, like for what I do. 
for ad agencies, like I forget the name of the creator, I'll have to send it to you, but um, he's a, a creative director, I think based out of Moscow or, or Dubai, like some somewhere abroad. But he basically was saying like he had this idea just to show like the power of AI and the different like devices and tools you can use. Um, you know, to do a mashup of Ikea meets Patagonia. Like what if Ikea had a line that was like collabed with Patagonia, what would that possibly look like, right? We get into these things all the time when we're pitching, like what if this company, X this company, like did a collab, you know? And so that would take creative directors in the past like weeks to like visualize that and research and style it and render it. And it costs a lot of money. Now you can put in a prompt, don't like it, put another prompt, you know, and he basically there's like a 15 minute video that shows his whole iterative process of how he got to like what is a really cool looking set of like Patagonia x Ikea collabs. It was cool. Super I mean, cool. yeah, like, so then I think about that as some as a pitcher as someone who's pitching business, I'm like, look, you have to learn how to use these tools agencies because 100% other agencies are going to be learning them. They're going to be using them and they're going to come with way better looking stuff conceptually than you do if you don't use them and, or you're just going to spend more time and waste more money than they are because a pitch is just an exercise in how you think that work never actually gets produced. Like 99 times out of hundred, you're not producing the pitch work. So, Mm. you know, the pitch is just how you think. So don't waste time. Don't waste money. Use the tools that are available to you. You know, you'll get further. So I think it's actually an excellent tool for for pitching. It, there's ethical concerns um, and copyright concerns about using it like in a published landscape. Like if that ever was to be published by Ikea or Patagonia, that would be a problem, right? Because it's like they're right. sourcing from who knows where like the, the AI is pulling from. So you can't then really like trademark that or you know, claim it as your own, it gets into like some like copyright infringement landscape that brands don't want to go. But just for like the closed door pitching stuff, I think it's really useful. Yeah. And I think to your point, like, and this is how I use it is just for a million ideas. Like if you're, if, you know, if you're coming up with like a headline or something like that, I mean, just, Hey, give me 20 headlines with these, all these different elements. And it just starts spurring stuff. It's almost like you never use you don't use it in its entirety the way it comes out, or you might keep asking it questions to mold it. And then it just, it like amplifies your thoughts almost. Yeah, like use like it a, to like, like a spark, like a thought starter. Yeah. Yeah. What would that look yeah. like? What would it look like? I, and one of my clients was using it as an example. He's a designer. He's like, what if I was doing like a wine bar theme? And what if it was like a mermaid holding a wine glass? Like, what would that look like? Even just to get like the sketch of like, what the shape of that should look like. You know what I mean? He could then like design it, but just like, what would it look like if a mermaid was sitting on a rock holding a wine glass? Like what would the even like look of that look like? And then it was really easy for him to like turn that into a logo. And then like cut down a lot of his just like body model composition time, you know, like you could let a computer do that. And then you could spend the the, the time you carve back creatively, you know, you can, level it up even further. Like I know Pixar is using it now to get through some of their ideation a lot faster than they used to, you know, your storyboarding and just coming up with, like you said, throwing ideas, spaghetti at the wall, you know, just to like get something down. How much faster can you get to like the actual creation if your ideation process is that much sped up? Yeah. It's, it's like any new technology. Everybody says that it's going to replace. And so that thought 
just it eliminates the even using it as a tool. And then we get used to using it as a tool, just like when the internet came out, then we get used to using it as a tool. And then we're like, oh, I can't believe we never used it. You know, there was a time that we didn't use this, you know, and that's kind of how I feel that it's going on right now with AI. Yeah, but. exactly. Exactly. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this was an awesome conversation. Me. Yeah. And, and so uh, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, I assume after this conversation, LinkedIn's the place to go. <laughs> yeah, LinkedIn's the place to go. You can just start with me, Nora Denuzo, D-I-N-U-Z-Z-O. I'm sure it'll be on the little thing there. Um, and then from there, you can find picture. Or you, I mean, you can go to my website. It's like a running joke amongst my friends that are web developers because for the first nine months I was in business, it said coming soon on my website. And then they were like, Nora, you're not coming soon. You're here. Like, just take that off. I was like, <laughs> okay, fine. And so now it's just like a form fill though. It's just a page. It's like need to grow, fill out this form. Like I, it's very basic. Like I don't invest a lot of time in my website because I'm so busy creating content and engaging with people on LinkedIn. So yeah, if you want to know how I think, go to LinkedIn. If you just Perfect. want me to help you and you want to give me your contact info, then you can go to pitchergrowth.com. <laughs> But awesome. yeah, you'll you'll laugh at how bad my website is. I'll probably just keep it out. like that forever, so that I can Should. just joke about how bad it is. <laughs> well, it's kind of the um, it's kind of like the anti-establishment, uh, anti-corporation type approach, right? Just there's the form, you know, you you see me on social media. I mean, what else am I going to say about it? You know what I mean? I guess like yeah. at some point, I can put my testimonials on there, and I can put this and this, but it's like. Right when I started, one of my who became a client asked me like, oh, do you have a case study? I'm like, bro, I've been in business for three months. I do not have a case study. OK, <laughs> you're just going to have to take my word for it. Right. Well, so. there's a, there was the 15 years with um, giant companies that you worked with. So, <laughs> yes, which you can also see on LinkedIn, too, I guess. Yeah. Right. right? So, uh, <laughs> no. Anyway, well, thanks for having me on, Jason. It was really nice to chat with you. I love, yeah, I love what you're you. doing and just, yeah, that the whole notion of impact and freedom. I'll, I'll leave you with this thought that like the thing that I like the most about being an entrepreneur is not the money, which can be up and down. It's not even the time freedom, which is great, but it's that I can finally fully speak my mind about mm. how I think and how I feel. And so, yeah, sometimes that gets into the political or, you know, social justice, racial justice space, because that's important to me. We didn't talk about that today, but you can see some of that content on LinkedIn. But yeah, I mean, just being able to like, basically not be fired. Like, I don't right. have to fear saying anything anymore. I mean, the worst that's going to happen is one of my clients will fire me or won't hire me. But when you're diversified, and you have a lot of clients. It doesn't really matter anymore, you know? So yeah, if you're somebody who I found when I got to the end of my career working for other people that I just didn't agree with, like pretty much every single call that was being made. I was mm. like, I think I got to go make my own calls my my way. So, yeah. yeah, when I resonate with that so much, like I, I, towards the end, I was like, why, why do I always start off working somewhere with just gung ho? And by the end, I'm like, I, I hate it. And it's like, oh, it's because like, this isn't the role for me. Like, well, you've been made to conform <laughs> wanna... to a standard that's not your own. Right. Yep. And, and you don't, when you, it's hard to be, to back something you don't agree with. So you'll find those things you don't agree with. And then you're like, this is not, this does not feel right. Yep. Trust your gut. Yep. hundred percent. Thank you so much, Nora. Thanks, Jason.